So literally to, to feel like what it is that you're doing in some way, shape, or form is contributing to the greater good, or it's, it fits with your, your worldview, be it a religious one or an ethical one or what have you. Hmm. So for me, you know, because I can, I can speak for me and my, myself only, the purpose is service to others. That's kind of how I think of doing podcasts like this and having written my book, coaching people and doing talks is that it's just intrinsically good. It's, it's just, it is a good thing to serve others to the extent one possibly can and to make them, to avail them of your gifts, whatever they may be. And my gift is gab and digging into science and providing bodybuilding brain candy for people. And people like that. Mm-hmm. It's entertaining, but it also I, hopefully has some substance because they can take that information and apply that to themselves in overcoming their own obstacles and gaining their own mastery. So I'm basically feeding back into that, you know, giving them bits and pieces, not dangling carrots, but hopefully teaching them how to find and, and seek out and catch the fish by giving them some hints as to how I've caught fish and some fish. Look at the fish I caught. This fish was a really big fish. I found it over that direction, and here's how I found it. And then those folks can then learn how to fit, become better fishers, become masters at their own craft, whatever it may be, bodybuilding or otherwise, too. The Cerebral Entertainment Podcast. Hey, thank you for checking into this edition of the Cerebral Entertainment Podcast. For this episode, we bring you the prolific Dr. Scott Stevenson. Scott is a PhD, bodybuilding physiologist, author of Fortitude Training and Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach, an absolute wealth of knowledge and extremely fun to talk with. During this episode, we catch up with Doc on his adventures over the past year. We talk bodybuilding, motivation, and much more. So be sure to follow Scott Stevenson, that's S-T-E-V-E-N-S-O-N, on the socials, and you can track him wherever he's located on the web by simply Googling Scott Stevenson Bodybuilding, and you can just take off from there. So without further introduction, here we go. Hey, welcome back to yet another riveting edition of the Cerebral Entertainment Podcast. I am James, and with me as always is my good friend, Colt. Yes, sir. And with us on the line today, returning guest, Dr. Scott Stevenson. Thank you for joining us today, Doc. How you doing? I'm I'm good. I have to be riveting. Is that that the uh, standard we're setting? That's a requirement, yes. It's the expectation you have now, so we like to put our, our guest on the spot and see if you can fulfill that expectation. I'm going to just try to speak in clickbait phrases, like nothing but that, so everything... <laughs> Everything can be sampled and you know pushed out all over the net to get people to click. That's Good. Perfect. I like I like clips. I need to use that for promotion okay. anyway. So excellent. You got one right there. <laughs> That's absolutely perfect. In today's day and age, clickbait is where it's at. That's how we get the likes, the follows, the visits. You know, the views. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was ha- we we're having a talk about this with Scott McNally, who I do the Muscle Minds podcast with, and there is a subtle art to that. You can literally be truthful. And make something sort of clickbaitish, or you could just be outright, you know, it can be outright bullshit. Literally, there's nothing in the video or the podcast or whatever you're going to that remotely resembles what the clickbait insinuates. Yes. But sometimes you can make, you can actually literally, you know, you come up with a good one. Yeah. So that's the way to do it, I think. That way you're not, you're not being unethical, but you're also, you know, being a good marketer. 
I agree, right. but it's like a crapshoot, though, because if you're out there in clickbait land, you never know what you're going to get. And, you know, clickbait's like a, you know, it, it's just, yeah. it, it's a gamble because sometimes you might hit on something like, this is going to be educational. This is going to, this is going to enhance my life. This little bit of information, I, I want to know about this. And then you click on it and it's something just completely irrelevant and, and stupid. Yeah. You know, so other times it could be educational, but you just never know. Mm-hmm. So you got to trust well, we the can, source. We- we can say let's we can veer this into my dating life and then and we've already have that topic has been covered so officially and now you can just use a thumbnail of a very buxom blonde and then everyone's going to think I'm dating you know the next coming of Pamela Anderson or what have you so there you go <laughs> we can we're do that for you yes we're good, we're good to go all right perfect perfect so we're we're ethical and now we can get back onto the real topics but you know nice people nice. can uh, you can tune out now we're not going to talk about my dating life today. <laughs> There's nothing to talk about, so it's a dead topic. Well, Doc, it has been over a year since we've last spoken to you, man. I know that you're always up to something. You're a busy guy, and you've got a lot of things going on, so why don't you catch us up, man? Let us know what's happened in this past year that's uh, worth worth talking about, which is probably everything. Yeah, I just got back from Scotland, um, which was too short of a trip. It was fun. I did a – we called it a Fortitude Training Super Seminar, and that was a really good time. Um, I think I talked with all of the, we had like 16 guys that came in for the full two day seminar and I talked to all of them on Instagram. I literally communicated with all of them beforehand and we just went to town. It was an absolute blast. So I'm hoping, so there's an interesting thing that so many people have told me, John Meadows and I have talked about this. Many people who do seminars sort of worldwide is that in the States, there's just not as high, I'm going to say this as nicely as I can, there's just not as high of a regard for that interpersonal, like one-on-one or like being in person with the person who's delivering the information hmm. as there is in, the, at least in Europe. And, and I know, I mean, I've heard, I've heard crazy numbers that have been given to people, um, big names, you know, top names, well-known, anyone would know their names, uh, in the American fitness industry to go over to China, for instance, like tens of thousands of dollars for like, just like a day seminar. And India is gigantic. They just, I don't know if it's a star power or just something about being there in person with them. And the UK is the same way. They're not, obviously I didn't get paid tens of thousands of dollars, but they really, they recognize some value in being able to interact with the person. And I think maybe even the way in which that information gets soaked in differently when you're in person with them and if you have a thought that you know comes into your head a little thought bubble comes up i always let people basically ask questions whenever they want interrupt me we'll make it a discussion take it off on a tangent and that's what we did during this two-day seminar some of the talks that i could burn through in like an hour we were taking like two hours or longer to do wow because they're taking me off on different tangents which was awesome right and it's a cultural thing, and I, I guess probably some of it, we may even talk about this today, given the topics that, that Colt mentioned we might get into, is I think a function of the extent to which people are sort of connected to social media and YouTube and how much they sort of uh, pull their information from that, because that's all free. You can go and, you know, you can watch anybody who's producing basically free content for the most part. Um, not everyone does this, but YouTube is just littered with all sorts of free information and you have to be a smart consumer in order to figure out what is, is maybe not the best thing to be imbibing information wise or not. And then to recognize that 
there is something to say for being able to get a personalized communication with that person. So these guys, I mean, literally, like, like here's here's a fun fact. There was a um, a place called Graham, which is uh, was uh, they serve pancakes and they make some specialty foods. They actually sort of catered the event for us with meals for everybody. And I had, I think, I had twenty seven of these three hundred and fifty three calorie pancakes over the course of like the three days I was there. So it's like I had like ten thousand calories just in pancakes in addition to my other meals and i still lost five pounds over the course of the trip and that was because these guys just kept me going like we'd finish up and like it's like okay look hour and a half for lunch or what have you four or five guys would stay around so i got another question for you i got another question for you and um and they tried to drain my brain dry of whatever i could give them so it was fun i, I love doing that. obviously that's not sustainable i'd do that for a week and you know i'd be 133 pounds soaking wet <laughs> but um so that was a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to getting over there again. And, and the guys at TR, TRA Performance Education, traperformanceeducation.com, you can check them. They've had Brad Schoenfeld over and a number of really well-known speakers. They did a phenomenal job. They set it up for me. So I want to get back over to Europe and um, do more of those. So, so I'm guessing you go, in, yeah. go, you go into each one of these seminars with certain topics and you just plan on things spider webbing around? Yeah, this one we did. The first day was basically my standard like fortitude training um, camp. The morning I cover sort of the the theory behind how I composed the program. I update the information, of course, and then and then the basics of how to execute it. And then the afternoon we get got in the gym and just went after it. Nice and went to town. So there's some big boys. There's some really some high level competitors and. I knew, like I said, I knew most of them, and they all, there's a certain, you know, it's, it's obviously not a random sample that's getting pulled. You know, these are people who like to train in that fashion. So we got some of them together. There was one, one group with uh, two brothers, and both of whom are bodybuilders who own gyms. Um, they're both from Ireland, I believe. One's in Lund, and the other one's now in, in North Carolina. And they're both animals. And then one of my clients... And then a good friend of his, who's also is uh, a media celebrity, so to speak. And those four guys tra- trained together. And it was just like the energy was just like uh, reverberating with synergy. It was, it was awesome. Mm-hmm. And that was just that one group. So you got, you know, these two guys like going bonkers on the hack squat. And then someone else is next to them on the leg press. And some other guys are doing squats. And I was just like, oh, like, holy shit, this is awesome. <laughs> I was running around, it's like screaming at everyone. There's about a half an hour point in there when we were doing the heavy loading sets for legs where the energy was just off the chain. It was just phenomenal. So, yeah, it's, that, was, that was the first, that's what we set this one up. And then I've got, I probably have 10 or 12 different lectures of an hour, half an hour to an hour, depending on the Q&A that I can do as well. So we scheduled, um. One of my favorites is, uh, I love to do this one, is Why You Don't Look Like a Pro, which is about biological interindividuality. Mm. And so I, I've got some um, uh, studies, basically everything from drug metabolism to glycemic index, variations in the microbiome, um, various things connected to the use of gear steroids mm-hmm. and why one person will be more responsive than another. Um, variations in protein synthesis and muscle adaptations. They're non-responders and responders. So I kind of go through like every little, every box that needs to be checked to be the best bodybuilder you are basically is subject to large, very large variability in terms of how responsive, even like one of the most like 
for me, one of the most amazing studies was comparing white bread with maltodextrin. And in this particular study, they have a, a, it's a full page where they, they plotted the individual glycemic curves for all the probably like 24 subjects or so with, I think, 100 grams of standardized dose of maltodextrin and white bread. And the curves, is, there's no pattern really at all that's discernible. In fact, statistically, they saw that there was greater in, intra-individual variability than there was inter-individual variability. So there's just like some people have glycemic index that's much higher for maltodextrin than for white bread, and other people at the other end of the spectrum, some people have a nice kind of U-curve, blood glucose goes up and comes back down. Some people, it kind of stays flat and peaks at the end of the three-hour period that they follow the glucose. Other people have a peak earlier on and maybe like a little double peak at the end, hmm. all over the place. So people are like, oh, no, you got to eat rice and sweet potato. And like these, are the, like these are the things you do. It's like, no. Even with simple stuff, like those are just basically as pure a source of carbohydrate as you can come up with. And everyone is so dramatically different. Hmm. So it's really kind of, uh, it was really fun to put that together. And I, I'm always finding more instances of how incredibly variable we are as uh, individuals, even though obviously the same species and, you know, alike in many, many, many ways, there's so much variability. So that's always a fun one to give it. It's sort of, um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's good because it gives some insights. Like, okay, no wonder I've been so frustrated. You know, this is maybe not, you know, this is, I've been trying, I've been beating my head, like, trying to do back squats because everyone says back squats are the best way to build legs and I'm eating these bodybuilding foods. Maybe I need to change something up. But on the other hand, it's like maybe I'm never going to get where I want to go because I'm just a non-responder and this, this kind of sucks, you know, but <laughs> it's the truth. So, uh, you know, better, I'd rather have the hard truth than a, than a lie. Yes. All day long. Yeah. yeah. So it seems like that, you know, it's not so much about what to do if you're trying to reach a goal in bodybuilding, but it's more about what to look for, right? What kind of, it, we're so individually different that you've got to be doing constant labs, seeing, seeing what foods affect you in what way, even the gear that you use, so on and so forth. It has to, you have to know what affects you because what affects Doc might not affect Colt in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, the hard thing, well, I think first and foremost, there are basic sort of tenets, you know, try to get as strong as you possibly can to mm -hmm. some degree. Yeah. I mean, that's, there's got to be some progressive overload, some basic things to follow. But for instance, there's one of the study, a study that I, that I've added to that, that just came out was a very, and I posted on, this is actually on my Instagram page. So we, we can link to that and people can check out the description I gave for it is really phenomenal. I'm glad that people are starting to do these things. So there was an initial study looking at high versus low frequency and it found no effect on muscle growth so should i train like a fortitude training style thing where you train everything three or even four times a week or should i use a bro split and this study went in and they actually they used an uh an internal control they used the same subjects training one leg five times a week and the other leg two to three times a week wow yeah and it was each the, there was sort of a there's a there's a frequency and a volume difference because they use three sets of ten for each training session. So the group that or the leg that was trained five times a week was getting more volume as well as higher frequency. But still, the results sort of still point to the same thing, which is the most important bottom bottom line message. So when they compared and initially they just compared the averages and there was no difference. It didn't matter whether you trained high or low. Neither was neither was superior in any way that was discernible. Just looking at the basic. 
means and running normal statistics. Mm -hmm. And then they looked at the individuals. And there's some nice plots in a follow-up study that they did. They published just, I think, this year. This was D-A-M-A-S. Damas is the first name. And they found some people did, some people just grew really, really well, regardless of a higher or low-frequency approach. Some people grew better with the higher frequency than the lower frequency. And remember, these are the same individuals. It's one leg versus the other leg. Right. So the hormones are the same. The nutrients are the same. The sleep is the same. The recovery is the same. Um, I mean, the only thing that could maybe be different is, you know, that one leg that's getting trained more often might be sore, so that may affect how, how hard they train it. But it's mm -hmm. about as good a control you, as you can have. Yeah. I mean, this, is, this is even better than twins. It's nice to have, like, you know, we take all the twins, we twins, twins, twin A and uh, twin B group. That's cool. This is actually the same individual, right? right. Same yeah. nervous system. Like, so if the one twin's got a girlfriend that keeps them up all night long, and the other one doesn't, uh -huh. well, that's that's a you know a, a factor that's going to reduce some variability. Well, in this case, both of those legs are up all night long with the girlfriend or not, you know. <laughs> so, so. They found some some people grew better with the higher frequency, and some people grew better with the lower frequency, and the opposite was also true. Some people had better growth in the leg that was trained two or three times a week, and others uh, and and not so much for the five times a week. Mm. And there were those who didn't grow very well at all, and those who grew really really well no matter what they did. So it's like okay, that really points to you have to figure out what works for you. Mm. And the smartest way, and I've written about this several times, is to try to change, I think, one or two things at a time. Ideally, just one major factor. And then and see how that manifests in terms of whatever you would expect it to, however you expect it to manifest. So if you're going to... If you're gonna if you're gonna vary your frequency, then keep your diet and your supplementation and your recovery and everything else all the same. And be methodical. And that's the hardest thing because... That's a so very cerebral, pardon the pun, but that's a very cerebral approach to bodybuilding mm -hmm. um, that is kind of at the opposite end of the mentality that you have when you go into the gym. And I mean, I love going in the gym and just being an absolute knucklehead. You know, it's just yeah. being just stupid and saying, you know, throw some more weight on there and just be an idiot and, you know, probably training too much, which I've done for years and years and years. Um, I think, in my in my opinion, I think I probably have trained to where I'm. I've been sore, more sore, and had more damage, and and probably overdone it a little bit more so than I would probably have been best for me. That's my guess now, looking back over all these years of training. But so it's hard to do that. It's hard to be very methodical at the same time as you're open up. You open up a can of whoop ass, you know, as repeatedly in the gym, but also being very methodical about doing that, you know. So. Um, it's kind of like being like you're shooting a machine gun and just spraying things everywhere, but you're also being, you know, very, uh, very much an automaton mm -hmm. about it as well. So, yeah. How many years do you think it took you to find out exactly what you needed to do? Or do you think you're still learning? I'll still always be learning. It's always changing, though. That's the thing. Right. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm older now. So what I can do now is different than what I could do when I was in my 20s. Right. So. Yeah, we're we're gonna. I'm gonna. I think this year I'm gonna try to try to. I'm gonna spend about a year trying to build back up. There's a new. There's a couple com competition possibilities at the end of next year that um, might be fun because I'll be 50. Oh. Nice. So, yeah. So finally, I'll be at the bottom of the age group again. <laughs> nice. <laughs> you know. And uh, it might be fun just to see you know see what can happen. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. 
I want to take the opportunity, a couple of opportunities here. First of all, to give props to the, the, the guys who would train their legs differently because yeah. what, if, what if one leg come out looking much different than the other? You lose some, <laughs> you lose some symmetry there, right, just for the sake of research. And so mm-hmm. that, 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 that's very interesting. Though. Like you said, you're taking all of the variables, the different variables, away from, from the subject because you're, not, you're, you're just using one subject. And, and so yeah. the, the diet, the sleep, all of that, um, just, it, it's all going to be the same. It's all going to be static. And that's very interesting. Also wanted to make sure that we, uh, we alert our listeners to just in case they don't remember or haven't heard our previous episode with you, that y- your book, I'm sure discusses a lot of this information that you're discussing yeah. right now, how to be your own. Don't, don't let me get it wrong, doc. What's the title? Be your, own, be your own bodybuilding coach, be your own bodybuilding coach. And yeah, so yeah. a lot of this information, this methodical information, this it's science, right? I mean, you've got to put science to it if you're really going to put your all into bodybuilding because you can't take what other people are doing and try to make it your own unless you just roll the dice and you get lucky and it works for you. It, it, it probably does for some, yeah. but we want the easy way out, right? I know that's, that's what I've looked for a lot in my past, especially a lot in my life. I looked for to see what this guy was doing. I tried to do the same thing. Either it worked or it didn't, and it, either I gave up or I, I kept going with it. But, well, that's always um, the starting point for anybody, though, right? Like the, the old magazines that you guys that everybody yeah. used to read and all that kind of stuff. Sure. It was what yeah. everybody else was doing until they learned their own. Sure, yeah, yeah. But well, uh, you're you're informed by what other people are doing. It may, I mean, like the if you if you go and you'd have to dig back into the internet archives. But when Dante Trudell, uh, formulator of dog crap training, talked about how he came up with that system, he he basically, that was an observational approach. He was looking at what a lot of the big guys were doing. What he was seeing, a very simplistic, like, the biggest guys are the strongest guys. And he pieced together things he saw people doing to make the system that is really a very, very effective system for putting on size. Mm. So the thing that is is tough is, and that's why I have that talk about why you don't look like a pro. And the subtitle is, like, why you're not a concert-level pianist, why you're not a rocket scientist, you know, why you're not playing in the NBA, why you're not in the NFL, you know, why you didn't go to MIT, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's, there's genetic determinism to some degree with basically every aspect of how we manifest as, as people, physically, mentally, et cetera. And it's the hardest thing to, to, get, to sort of accept as a bodybuilder because basically you have to say, damn it, that guy is just going to be better than I am. <laughs> right. He's got better genetics. And he's superior to me. And, and this is something that, like, l- literally, it's your body. We are so attached to, our egos are so attached to the vessel, especially as bodybuilders being the narcissist that we are. At least I'm speaking for myself. So there's, a, there's something built into that. There's an egotism built into that. And you have to literally say, it's kind of like, the feeling that would have if you went on the on the under the uh, car lot at the dealership and you bought yourself a new car and you drove off and you're thinking I got a really good deal and you're like you know what I kind of bought a kind of a junker like this is a little bit of a lemon you know and like you don't want to admit that you know like, you're like fuck it no I can fix this thing <laughs> you know I can I can you know add some chips to it and put a new exhaust on it and add some tires but it's never gonna be. A Lexus, mm-hmm. you know, if you bought a Buick or whatever, not to pick on any particular car, <laughs> but it's just not going to happen. So that's the thing is like to realize, well, you know what, you got a Buick, but you're, you're born as a Buick, but you can do a lot with that. And I think that's the thing that I, in my opinion, now, now to get in more of the cerebral types of thoughts that I, I think is really at, at its root, at least for me, that the trins, intrinsic value of bodybuilding. 
is the learning process and being able to, to have some, a sense of mastery, so to speak, over what it is that you're doing with your own body. So it's a very, I mean, it's almost, you, almost universal. If you look, so there's some really good coaches who are really good bodybuilders and pros. John Meadows obviously pops into mind, and he's got, had, has had a very cerebral approach to things. But there's a, such a learning process that comes with having to figure out how to make a Buick keep up with the Ferraris, or at least try to, that you, you go through such a sort of an internal and psychological and a cerebral development process that's much more valuable, I think, than just, I went in the gym and whatever I did, I grew from. That's cool. You're a monster. You look phenomenal. Um, and it, sometimes it can't be even the best thing for personal development because you look so good. You're just, it, can, it can build, I think, an egotistical monster out of some people. Yeah. Um, because that's just, that's just the nature of the human ego. I think I would, it would have happened to me. I, I would have been a different person if, for instance, if I had, you know, a different set of genetics, I'm sure, you know, so I'm, I, it's not like I'm the pot calling the kettle black, you know, it very well could have been me as well. But having had that challenge is those struggles are the things that I think make us better as human beings. And it makes bodybuilding coaches, better bodybuilding coaches, and it makes people more knowledgeable. Because you don't have anything, you don't have any struggles, you don't have anything to move past, and you, there's no learning process that happens. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if everything was easy, like, how would you know how to train someone who hasn't followed your path? And this is the bottom line that I say even in that talk, is that if you're looking for someone, if you're not sure who to follow or who to listen to, um, pay attention to the people who are following the path that you will be following or that you are on. So, and I give the, uh, the analogy of like, you know, climbing Pikes Peak or something like that, climbing a mountain. It's like if someone is just uber wealthy, they're a billionaire and they got to the top of Mount Fuji by, by, uh, chartering a helicopter and they flew up to the top and they took some cool pictures and posted them on Instagram. Um, then learning how to get to Mount Fuji in the way they did may not apply to you unless you're a billionaire and you can charter a helicopter. Right. You may actually have to climb that. So you learn from the people who actually climbed it and had to deal with that, hire a Sherpa or what have you to make that happen. That's where you're going to find your best source of information. And that's, I think, the value in, in actually most challenges of life is that they, they, they evoke, um, they allow us to express more of who we truly can be and our, and our potential. Mm. And that doesn't happen without a challenge. Yeah. So... Yeah. One of the one of the major points I'm, that I'm hearing right now, Doc, is the 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 difference between intrinsic or internal and external reward. You know, yeah. I, I feel like the external reward for for bodybuilding, fitness, and nutrition in general is to look good, right? It it and that helps you socially. And there's there's a lot of there's a lot of value in that. There's a lot of value in me looking my best. It it boosts mm-hmm. my self esteem, and hopefully, I can I can manage. That uh, that tipping point between confidence and cockiness, or what have you. Now, I don't want to be a complete a hole in life, but right. I, I want to look good. I want to know that I look good, and there's re- there's a, there's a value to that in my life. But the intrinsic reward that you're also referring to, uh, it, when people don't find that, and I feel like I didn't find it until I got older, you know, and that's that's mm. partially because I wasn't around the right people in this in this realm, at least, uh, of fitness and nutrition. 
But the uh, the intrinsic value to me goes beyond just the staying in shape and feeling good. You know, it, like you said, it goes to to the challenges. It speaks to the work and the effort that I put in, and it it's it's a mindset for me that is is goes beyond just the the working out aspect. I, I it translates into other parts of my life, but mm. I, but I learned it by the work that I put in to building myself up, to making myself look good and feel better and be healthier. And so right. those, those challenges like climbing that mountain, I would have never been able to do that had I just, you know, someday, somehow magically woken up and, <laughs> and, and looked like I had been working out for the past, you know, whatever, umpteen years. Yeah. So, yeah. That, that's a huge, a huge topic if you look at the, in the realm of ethics and sport and like what the purpose of any athletic endeavor. I'm going to sort of toss bodybuilding into there because the training is, you know, is athletic in nature, although the competition per se is not so much. It's more of kind of an art form, really, blended with aesthetics. And this, at least that's how I think of it. That's the idealized way. It's not exactly how it manifests a lot of times. Yeah. A lot of times it, it's a lot of, it manifests as peacocking and that sort of thing. But there really is something to say for that. And that's, that, that's the idea is like if you look at, if you look at like a, um, pick a game, badminton or what have you, tennis, and, you play that you play that game there's nothing like that is actually being created from that game per se like it's not like when you're done you can say you know look we create a we create a tennis mountain and like a tennis mountain can be used uh, you know as the base structure for your house or you can you know use it to you know glue together bricks or anything like like no there's nothing that comes from that except the experience of having played tennis with that person and the experience is one where a set of rules have been put in place to create a, a way in which you can challenge on equal footing, hopefully with a competitor that's roughly of your skill level, who's going to challenge you to become better in some way, shape, or form. And there's an intrinsic built-in value that comes with that challenge. And if you break the rules, um, for instance, and, and you just like, uh, you know, you pull out a gun and you shoot them right before you serve, like, and then you know, when you ace them, it's like, well, yeah, yeah, that, that was freaking out. Like that doesn't, you, you sure you aced him, I guess, but you broke the rules. You can't shoot people on the tennis court right. or if the ball goes outside the line, you know, and you, and you're dishonest and you say, you know, or it was inside the line, you say it was outside and you're dishonest in your favor, then you're breaking the rules and you're disintegrating the nature of that of that challenge, you're, like you're disintegrating the opportunity to literally say, "He beat me on that point." Okay, what happened? I, I think I see. I need to pay closer attention to the way my competitor moves his hips because I can read where he's going to hit the ball if I look at look at his midsection as opposed to his eyes. He tells me he's sort of he he he's uh, he's giving me information as to where the ball is going to go, and I can pay attention to that. I've learned something there. But if I just say, oh, no, that was out, and then I just blow it off and take the point, then, then you're, you can end up bypassing those learning possibilities, learning opportunities. Right. So you get more of those learning opportunities the worse a bodybuilder you are <laughs> to a certain degree. Yeah. Uh, and the more challenges you have. Now, of course, you don't want to be like completely just beating your head against the wall. Um, you know, sometimes people will go overboard and they'll just damage themselves because bodybuilding is at the competitive level is, is – uh, isn't the healthiest thing um, to do, but it does have that sort of sense of intrinsic reward. And if you're, 
if you're someone who is just got phenomenal genetics, it makes it really fun. And some people can actually put it all together, like, like Ronnie Coleman did eventually he with the help of Chad Nichols, of course, but he loved to train and he pieced a lot of things together. So he sort of like was a fusion of really tremendous efforts and dotting all his eyes and doing the things that just brought him joy and phenomenal genetics and it made you know the goat the greatest of all time mm -hmm. but some people you know there are many many pros and i've seen this i've seen people in the gym that are like olympia level competitors that it's like i can't believe that what are they doing like the, those are all warm-up sets nothing there was nothing remotely close to what you would consider like a true stimulus it's just their genetics is there and that's that's almost, I would feel like that almost could be a trap. I, and you maybe have seen this before with people who have genetic gifts. They're really, really good at something. It's like, oh, you need to do this. And they really don't want to. Mm -hmm. That happens sometimes too. And I've seen that in, in bodyless. Like they, like you should be, and they, and they live sort of in the shadow of what they're supposed to live up to. And they never pursue what they really want to do. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, and, and you know, it's funny because one of the things that i that I wanted to talk about in context with the, the topic of drive and motivation is if you guys talked about Daniel Pink's book, it's actually entitled drive. Huh? I don't think so. Huh? It's, oh, it's, it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. So yeah, I, I have it as an audio book. Um, it's been around for a while. You can find some videos that he's done. So I can't, I can't summarize the entire book, but there's a, a, actually a pretty large growing body of literature looking at this old kind of standard model of how to motivate people to do things. So, you know, the idea in the business world would be, you know, we're going to give the best performers the highest salaries. We're going to give them the biggest bonuses or what have you. And that really doesn't motivate people. If it's like something where it's kind of like kind of a mechanical, automatic, you know, almost thoughtless type endeavor, like, you know, it's just, just filing files, something like that, then that will motivate people. But when there's some creativity and some, some personal investment in creating something new, the, the dangling carrot doesn't work at all. Mm. And he goes through in, the, in his book the, the whole idea that I think, I think the, basic, the basic portions are to give people to some degree autonomy. And you see this in big businesses now. I think Apple does this and some of the larger corporations. They give people like free days and they don't, they don't require them to come in and start at 9 and leave at 5. They can work whatever they want to. And they want to have some mastery as well. So it's that idea of get, like getting better at your, at, your, at your craft that is motivating the people. It's just intrinsically valuable. And that's what can come from bodybuilding is it's a never-ending succession of trying to get better at your craft. If I, to answer your earlier question again, Cole, if I was like, well, I think I learned all this bodybuilding stuff. Like, there's nothing left to learn. I probably wouldn't do it. I mean, <laughs> I still train. I like to go in the gym. That's I just find that activity rewarding. But I wouldn't be nearly as interested as I am because I know there's just there's more treasure in the box there. And uh, the last per the last point of, uh, of of Pink's book is I think mastery. Oh, sorry, sorry. Um, is mastery, and then the last part is having purpose. So literally to, to feel like what it is that you're doing in some way, shape, or form is contributing to the greater good or it it's fits with your, your worldview, be it a religious one or an ethical one or what have you. Hmm. So for me, you know, because I can, I can speak for me and my, myself only, 
the purpose is service to others. That's kind of how I think of doing podcasts like this and having written my book, coaching people and doing talks is that it's just intrinsically good. It's, it's just, it is a good thing to serve others to the extent one possibly can and to make them, to avail them of your gifts, whatever they may be. And my gift is gab and digging into science and providing bodybuilding brain candy for people. And people like that. Mm-hmm. It's entertaining, but it also uh, hopefully has some substance because they can take that information and apply that to themselves and overcoming their own obstacles and gaining their own mastery. So I'm basically feeding back into that, you know, giving them bits and pieces, not dangling carrots, but hopefully teaching them how to find and, and seek out and catch the fish by giving them some hints as to how I've caught fish and some fish. Look at the fish I caught. This fish was a really big fish. I found it over that direction, and here's how I found it. And then those folks can then learn how to fit, become better fishers, become masters at their own craft, whatever it may be, bodybuilding or otherwise, too. You know, one of the things that that I come up against, it's so interesting. I get asked questions all the time on Instagram and social media, sometimes email, but a lot of time it's become Instagram now. And I the thing I think to myself, and I, I resist the urge most of the time, not always, to send them a link to let me Google that for you. <laughs> you know, that website. Yeah, I love that, you know. Uh-huh. So, so no, it's LMG that F it's the the acronym for let me google that for you.com. Mm-hmm. And you go there, you go to that, you type in whatever the search terms would be and then you get a link that basically brings them to sort of a visual display of how to load up Google, how to type <laughs> in the, and then how to click, you know, search and get your results. Because people don't even do that in many cases. Mm-hmm. And it's just that's a bizarre thing. Literally learning how to seek out your own information can can open up so many people's eyes. Like they can find so, like, oh, my gosh, I, I didn't really re- just something about there's like a big black hole in their their visual or, or their 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 concept of what the world can give them information wise. So they seek out authorities because they don't trust themselves to some degree to filter that information. And you can. It can be done. But you got to like, you can swim, but you got to get in the pool first. Mm-hmm. Right. Google and like, okay, shit, there's a massive amount of information. Well, that's clickbait. That's clickbait. That's an ad. I don't want that. But oh, this guy sounds, this guy sounds good. He's, he's got a good resume. He looks like a good bodybuilder. Okay, I'll, maybe I'll listen to this guy, you know, and read what he has to say. So I do that with people. And then people will come back to me with more educated, well-constructed questions. Then I'm like, now we're talking. That was awesome. Right. You're digging in, you're learning, and that's a skill that can be used for anything. It's like going to go buy a new car, going to get a vacuum cleaner. You know, you dig into the Amazon reviews, and then you, you know, look to see which of those are actually legitimate certified purchases. Um, and then you look at the reviews on Home Depot and Lowe's and wherever else you might buy a vacuum cleaner. And you dig around, and there's massive amount of information you can find. You talk to someone like, you know, hey, I'm looking for a vacuum cleaner. What do you suggest? Oh, Hoover's the best. I've had Hoover's for the last four years. You've got to get a Hoover. Okay. So you can do that, but people just, they relinquish their power to a certain degree to be masters of their own fate. Free will is, I think, something we talked about last time, so that's maybe, you know, that's a whole other topic we can go back into, but right. I think there's something to say for that, you know? So that, I think, is such, I, I derive so much satisfaction in, in just kind of seeing people just, 
go to the tipping point of realizing that they can they can procure all the information. It's there's nothing really special about me aside from I'm really really curious. But if someone were as, as off the charts curious as I am and as interested in bodybuilding, they could have written the same book that I wrote, and they could have found all the same information. It's all. It's not as if I have some special access to the you know the dark web or something like that where I gain this information that no one else can get unless they have this the encrypted password or something. Mm-hmm. People can people realize when they realize that it's really kind of cool to see. You know, a big right. a big part of what you're talking about there, Doc, is learning how to learn or or learning how to do your own research, right? Yeah. But you're exactly right. There are a lot of people who just don't know. And I, do I ever t- use it to my advantage? Sometimes I do. People will ask me a, a question, and I will get out my phone, and I will Google it. I will give them an answer and not tell them I just Googled it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I look like the smart guy, right? Um, but no, I, I try my best. I, I love your motto. I love your approach to adding value to people. Right? That's. I mean, that is, in and of itself is such a high level of it carries with it a high level of intrinsic motivation just getting getting rewarded within yourself by just adding value to other people teaching other people how to learn is so huge because in a dream world of mine we all do such a good job with all of the massive amounts of information on the internet with probably at least half of it if not three-fourths of it being bunk information being clickbait being just ludicrous I, I would I would like to see a world where that doesn't happen anymore because everybody is such everybody is such good researchers, right? Everybody right. knows that not to, not to click on that clickbait because it's no good. It, it has no use for us anymore. Will mm-hmm. we ever get to that point? I don't know. I, I, I kind of felt like it's gone the opposite way because we're like in a society now where it's everything's at our fingertips. We I want this and I want it now. So everybody's impatient now. So it's like they could just reach out to Scott Stevenson and be like, I tell me this i want i want to know the answer and they trust you and they're going to be like i want Ooh. i want to know this now versus having to get on google and then f- you know filter through everything to try to find the right answer and then possibly still not knowing the answer they could have gotten from you yeah you know it's i have to it's an honor i have to you know if someone comes to me for the question they came to me with the question and there's no stupid questions as they say so i have to mm-hmm. recognize that and I sometimes I'm just like the hard ass, and I'll, I'll like I was like, did you even try to Google that or something like that? I, it depends on sort of the mood I'm in or how many of those I've gotten in a row now. <laughs> um, and I answer the same question repeatedly, many many times. And but I will tell people, and almost every time I would say, at least ninety five percent of the time, people actually are thankful because I explain to them one of the things I've done. Um, my friend Alan Aragon actually mentioned this once and I do it a lot on Instagram now is let's just respond with a voice message instead of typing something out. It's really funny. One of the ways in which we're kind of, our brains are hacked in so many ways by social media and the internet. We're unaware of it is people will, and and I can't type at a million miles an hour on my phone. I just, I just never picked up that skill. I probably have a block because I don't want to be that good at it. (laughs) Um, But I can, I can put out in 50 seconds of a voice message five times information if I texted somebody. Right, and it's a much more personal way to do that. And so I will send someone a message, and all the nuances of, you know, if, if I if I respond, and literally the message is, all right, man, I have to ask you, did you even try to Google that? <laughs> that's that's different than if I just wrote, did you even try to Google that with a little emoji, you know, thinking emoji. Mm-hmm. That could come across as like the guy's an asshole. Like I just had a simple question. You got to like come back with that shit. So there's so many, I try to, I try to like let people know that I'm here to try to help them as much as possible. 
as best I can convey that. Not everyone takes it that way because they just want the information. But a lot of people who come to me um, are very, very, very thankful that uh, that I've kind of turned them on the idea of like, not only can you figure this out in like a five-second Google search, but you've got the key to answering questions for the next several decades at least until something until we become integrated as cyborgs with the Internet. You don't have to type in things into the search engine or what have you. Right. Yeah. yeah. So people are thankful for it. But you're right. You know, it's um, we, we give up a certain amount of our freedom in that mm-hmm. in that way. And there's a natural tendency to to like the the logical fallacy of appeal to authority, you know, is there for a reason. So like I, I've even I even think about that with this with this podcast because we're going to talk about if we're talking about internal motivation and, and psychological factors pertaining to that. Like that's not my. I mean, I, I've just got a layperson's perspective on that. You know, someone we can connect to the bodybuilding world, things I've experienced as a coach and inter, inter, interacting with people, but. That's not my area of expertise, but people are like, oh, it's Dr. Scott or Dr. Scott Stevenson or Dr. Stevenson. So he obviously, whatever he says should carry more weight just because of the moniker of doctor. And that's not necessarily true. If, if anything, really, the way I think of it is that you should put that, hold that person to a higher level of discretion and criticism potentially because they, because they have been educated they should know when to speak about the things they know about and also know when to say, I don't know. Right. So I have to be careful. We want to keep this. This is entertainment. It is entertainment podcast. Yeah. It's not like, you know, the cerebral, um, you know, psych 101 podcast. Where <laughs> right. We're trying to actually like give people college credits. <laughs> so I'm just talking like as a regular guy who's got some perspective on this, but yeah, you get no CEUs for listening to this podcast, by yeah, the way, not, anybody out there. Right. Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's no guarantee for a higher IQ after this. <laughs> right. Maybe the opposite way, right? One of the things, Doc, that that well, let me just speak for us. The reason why we, when when Colt had booked with you again, I was I got excited, right? Because oh, I, I believe that Thanks. one of, one of the the most valuable things that comes from us doing an episode with you is is just the discussion, just the unpacking mm. of these ideas based on experience. You know, I, yeah. I, I'm not even thinking about. You know, Doc. Yeah, I call you Doc, but I'm not even. I'm not even thinking about Doc Stevenson when I'm at, when I'm asking this question. I'm thinking, I wonder what he's thinking right now. How how has his experience? <laughs> how does this experience relate to this this topic that I'm interested in? Because right. I, I believe that experience is is it's just so fundamental to the way that we we think about life and the way that we perceive things. And um, if you have any success at all in life, it's because we've also had so many failures, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think that one of the one of the most uh, I think the, the the lines that are drawn for a lot of people is the ability to to take value out of a loss, uh, and not mm-hmm. just big losses, but daily losses. The things that didn't work. How can I improve what I just did in order to be a little bit better? And that's experience. Mm-hmm. But not everybody. Yeah. Not and I can even speak for myself. There have been times in my life where I wasn't very good at that, and I still have a lot of work to do. Don't get me wrong. But I'm a <laughs> lot better at it because I have the I'm conscious of the concept of adding or, or, or seeking value in loss. And so, yeah. so somewhere along the line, I was enlightened to that topic. And I think that's, that's one of the best, the, the ways that Colt and I have always tried to add value through this show is to 
bring topics to the surface that many maybe people hadn't heard before. Maybe they hadn't contemplated that before, and it clicks that light bulb on. Suddenly, I'm like, okay, that's something that I can think about now, apply to my life, and, and see if it works for me, or, or see what that does to, to change my perspective on this thing that's in my life. Maybe it's a challenge. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a, a good thing, but I just haven't really unpacked it and contemplated why it's a good thing. You know, all, right. all these things can add so much to our, it, it enriches us so much in our daily experience of life, but we don't know it until we know it. We don't mm -hmm. know it until we, until the, you know, the, the enlightenment comes to our head. Yeah. And we learn so much, we learn so much more from our mistakes. You reminded me of a, a friend of a friend who, um, and I, I don't know much about him now, but as of a few years ago, he was struggling and, um, I, I'm absolutely certain he's not listening to this podcast, but he was someone who had had extreme success he was genetically gifted as an athlete so imagine someone who can literally go and play any game and be better than anyone else even people who have been playing for years and he was a world-class um he was in a fighting sport and he was and he also probably could have gone to the nfl um just amazing and always really really good at those things and then he, later at you know just as a few years ago in life he was um, some other things that kind of like channeled his life in the point where he never really had any failures until he was in his like mid late fifties or forties. And he didn't know what to do with himself. He literally did not know, like he was as a personal trainer, has got phenomenal genetics, but he never had to do anything extraordinary to have like a phenomenal physique. And he's sort of letting himself go and aging was kind of coming on to him. And he just, it, it was, in his case, I, I bring him up not to criticize him in particular, but he was a very, it was a very distinct situation of someone who had never run up against those challenges and those failures and had to learn from them in a way that, like, it paralyzed him. Mm. And it, like, like it's, it's like, dude, just like stop eating the bacon, <laughs> you know, and just start doing like half the things you could do, like one quarter of what you have most of your clients do, and you look great. And he just couldn't do it. He had just, like, that whole skill set just never developed whatsoever. And so there's so much so much to say from, yeah, looking at those failures. But our society doesn't, our society really doesn't reward that very often. Right. Um, it's crazy because when you have one-on-one -on -one conversations like this, almost if you really are becoming intimate with someone, you're talking to them about how they really feel and, you know, once you get past some of the, the bullshit, the personas that we typically wear, the masks that we wear, almost I think everyone would admit what you're saying. You know, mm -hmm. it's like I learned so much and sometimes I have to learn again and again and again. That's the thing for me. I mean, I've learned, like we mentioned dating before, but I've, I've learned like that long distance does not work. And I could, I could go I'll talk about a topic. I could tell you all sorts of my insights as to why those things don't work and what kind of happens with a long distance interaction, at least, at least for me. And I've got multiple instances, um, that sort of, sort of ingrained that burned that branded that information into my brain, my heart and my soul, um, <laughs> that I now know that. But anyway, if you talk about these ideas of learning from failure, people are like, ah, we don't, we don't see that. It's not like, not a common, um, thing to see in the news media. I don't think. Um, but, those are the really important stories. I think those are the ones that, that are the, that are the real, the real, so, sometimes you put, put the pieces together and you did everything right. It's like, okay, cool. I came up with a good formula. I learned something, but that, at least in my, in my life, that has not been the, the status quo. It's mm -hmm. not how it usually works. Yeah. 
So, yeah, I, I think one one other differentiation in um, motivation that I've been looking into a bit is is the approach versus the avoidance perspective on motivation. You know, either either we're approaching something because we are, it, it seems to me that's more parallel to the intrinsic motivation, or we are trying to avoid something. And I think I think the classic, if, if we go back to bodybuilding, I think one of the classic ones, it, and, and maybe not bodybuilding as a sport, just people going into the gym, working out, trying to get bigger. Let, let me phrase it that way. But I think a lot of times it's because the person was the skinny kid or for me, my, my older sister used to call me chicken legs. And so I was <laughs> like, okay, I don't want to be chicken legs, right? This is when I was a right. kid. I don't want to be chicken legs. And so therefore I started to lift weights to work out because I wanted to be bigger. I was avoiding the threat of the chicken leg moniker, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but at some point, and I was saying kicked in your face, essentially it's, it, a, it's that storyline. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so I'm trying to avoid that. That has a power to it, and I, th- I think we're going to have that in our lives because we want to avoid, like in health, I want to avoid uh, metabolic disease, and so therefore I want to take care of myself. You know, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to eat a bunch of processed and, and, and sugar and, and all those kinds of foods that I know are going to be bad for me because I'm trying to avoid the threat of having bad health. But at the same time, there's the approach model, which causes me to want to do something because I want the value added by that thing. And so mm. something I mentioned to Cold, I think it, for maybe for a lot of people, for me specifically, though, I think working out started out as an avoidance. But then there was a tipping point to where I, I added or I, I become uh, aware that there was added value in it intrinsically for me. And so nowadays I approach that more because I like the value that I get from it in a, in a more obvious way. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think once again, I think society, like you mentioned, is driven by extrinsic motivation, extrinsic reward, I should say, uh, based on my, whether it's money, which is, I think, the big the biggest driver of, of anybody for in, in society is, is money. But also, you know, social prestige, things like that, maybe prestige on the on the job. Um, and I also think that avoidance motivation is probably the, the most uh, relevant in society as well. Yeah, you know, you mentioned the, the two things, the avoiding the chicken legs comment, which um, I think is, is you know, a certain way we can add, add another if we're sort of boxing this out or, you know, we've got internal and external and then we've got sort of immediate and distant reward being negative or positive. Mm. And I don't know many people who have, you have to have had some sort of life crisis, literally like uh, either you got really sick or your parent or someone close to you end up getting sick and you were literally had to go through some sort of a trauma for for someone to be motivated on a regular basis to eat better and and exercise to avoid some disease state which may or may not ever happen to them it's years down the road i mean it's not a common thing it's like you know so why do you go like you go into the gym and you get on that damn treadmill like a rat in a wheel and you go and you go and you go for 35 minutes and you and you just hate every minute of it. Like, why are you doing that? Like, why not do something? Well, you know, this is what the doctor says I need to do because I might have, a, um, you know, I could have a heart attack 20 years from now. That's that's too far away. And I'll, I'll just toss in, I'll, I'll call upon another authority because this is a, it was a really kind of a, it was a very salient moment um, when I when I heard this said. So there's a guy by the name of Rod Dishman who was, I think he's still at University of Georgia. He spent about 20 years of his academic career studying exercise adherence. Try, and this was something I was very interested in, especially when I was doing my master's degree. Is like, 
how do we get people to keep going and doing something we know is good for them? It's a health-related behavior, and people don't do health-related behaviors very often unless there's something more immediate. And so he had spent, there's all sorts of ways in which you can conceptualize these health behaviors and motivate people with spousal support and, you know, rewards and various other things of that nature. And he actually gave up after decades of research on that and switched to basically looking at sort of a biopsychological aspects of exercise and using animal models and rats. He kind of gave up on the human thing because his bottom line thought was that you can make minor changes. You can definitely get some people to exercise more often, to do things more often that are good for them in the long term. But far and away, this was this was his thought, and, and I tend to agree with this, was that we're creatures of immediate gratification. Mm. And we want something now. Yeah, or right. we want to avoid something now. So yeah. like you if you come back you come walking in from the gym and let's say your your sister's there and you got your sh- shorts on and your legs still got a bit of a pump and she just kind of looks at your legs and you're like what he's got to say for that? And she just looks away. Like you don't get the, you're like, damn straight. Those aren't chicken legs now, baby. You know, and you, you can do the quad flop and everything if you wanted to, you know, that is immediate. Like you, the lack of a comment is an immediate source of gratification in a way. Yeah. But, but if you, you know, if you, if you go and say, you know what, I've just spent five years exercising and according to this epidemiological study, I've reduced my risk of a heart attack after the age of 75 by 2.3%. Like, no, it's like, oh, so who gives a Literally. And so people, we don't exercise on a regular basis. So yeah, I think there's, there's reward and there's punishment, so to speak, or Mm -hmm. avoiding, you know, negative. But I think the, What's most important is that we really, and this comes with the intrinsic reward. I mean, and this connects back to me, you know, I'm not a saint. Like the idea that I'm helping people because I'm some, you know, uh, purely altruistic being who has just been put on the earth to like, you know, spread goodness and, and, and niceness to people. I get an intrinsic reward from doing that. I, I'm doing what I feel like I think is the right thing to do. Mm You know, and that, and I have to recognize, like, if I didn't think it was the right thing to do, I wouldn't do it, of course. Um, but because I feel it is, then I like doing it, and then I continue to do it. And if I wonder, like, if we could, you know, give me like a some sort of a, a, a dopamine receptor antagonist that would prevent me from feeling like some immediate, like, you know, that felt good. Like that guy got back to me. He's like. He's like, Scott, that was so cool. I, I, I found a bunch of other stuff. I'm so glad you pointed me in the direction of PubMed.com where I can actually look up all those scientific studies. Yeah. That didn't feel like, like that was a good thing. I probably wouldn't do it. Right. You know? Yeah. So I, I'm like, I'm, I have to like think I'm pretty lucky. My dad was a physician. My mom was trained as a social worker and she, you know, likes to help people. So I've got it like kind of built into my genetics to be kind of a bit of a helper. And then I got a family of origin stories that also kind of contributed to that too. But so I, like I've, I'm set up to be able to, to do what I'm doing and like it and actually make money off it at the same time. So that's pretty, that's a, that's a pretty cool deal. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I like to go and, you know, go in the gym and train. Like that's a pretty good deal. A lot of, a lot of people don't want to, they'd rather not do it. If they could just, I heard someone talk about, and I think I heard Dorian say this too, is talk about, you know, um, like training instinctively, you know, and Dorian's comment was something like, well, if I train instinctively, I would just sit on the couch and drink beer because I don't want really <laughs> to train, but I actually like to train. I actually like to do it. Yeah. You know, I enjoy that. So, 
that's that's something that I feel really lucky about. So I get intrinsic reward, and that's that's the thing I think that's that is one of the it maybe even considered a kind of a key to happiness is figuring out the things that you actually like to do, and figuring out how to align, align those with your ethical, moral, and, le- and principles and what's legal as yeah. well, and how you to know, make money. Yeah. Right. I, I, yeah, I mean, I mean, even or even not even make money. Like, uh, money is just surrogate happiness for some people. I mean, like, what is money? Is money is an illusion anyway? Sure. So maybe I mean, maybe it, how to survive is a better way to put that. How how to how to thrive? So, uh, yeah, well, you got to eat, right? You got to have some, right. some of the necessities. So how can you take that the passion that you have, or however you want to, everyone phrase that, and make it into something that helps you to live the way that you want to live your life? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's um, – I can't remember the number now. There's so many – I mean, I know that if you're, if you're above $35,000 a year in like basically current U.S. funds, you're in the top 1% in the world, mm-hmm. and ha- happiness doesn't go up anymore beyond like a $55,000 a year annual income, something along that. I can't remember the exact numbers now. Yeah. So um, – and that, that's our cultural perspective. You know, some people can be really happy in other cultures with much, much, much less. That has nothing to do with money. Money is, I mean, it's a Western world type of thing as far as, as far as, to my, to my, I mean, you need to have the wherewithal to have those basic needs met. It's a Maslow's pyramid type of thing, I think. Yeah. And so money lets, money basically kind of builds the foundation of the pyramid. You've got shelter, you've got food. Um, but it's finding out how to get some gratification out of what you do on a regular basis that I think is really is really a, a key aspect of living a good life. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people out there that aren't happy. We just work in that nine to five every day, and they've settled into what they're doing because that's what's making the money because everything's tied to the money, and it becomes yeah. a major issue in in society in general. I mean, I don't know what percentage there is out there of people that are unhappy, but. Um, you know, like like for us with the podcast, this isn't making us money, but it's something that we are enjoy doing. We are happy when we do it, and bringing people like you on who are you know giving information to our listeners and things like that. That's things that make us happy outside mm-hmm. of the nine to five jobs and things like that too. So it's uh yeah, I think it's a very important conversation to have, and I don't say I look down upon people who aren't investing time into trying to do something in their life that makes them happy. But I think settling is a major issue with a lot of people. Yeah. Well, the, there's tremendous cognitive dissonance in coming to the firm realization that you're perpetually doing something that really doesn't make you happy. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, like, well, so, like, you can't, like, you can't keep going, dragging yourself to that nine to five that you just despise, um, unless you somehow have sort of created a belief in your head. You've deceived yourself into thinking that this is what I need to be doing, and this is there's. There's some rationale for this, um, and I, it's, I just had this conversation with a friend last night on the phone. We were talking, and we thought of another another friend who makes really, really good money, tremendously good money. He could have retired years and years ago. He's got a very important position in what he does, and he really just like wants to like go down and like live in the Keys, or you know, open a you know, rent out fishing boats, or just like do something like really simple. He's a very technically inclined person. He doesn't need this money, but the money is so good, and the char- the spell that's been put on our mind in our in our in our psyches about how how good and valuable and sparkly and wonderful that money is 
in and of itself, for whatever reason, mm. it just keeps people longing for more and more. It's like Gollum in Lord of the Rings is like, give me the money, give me the money. And to your, like, there's something to say for that. I mean, I think I, I'm, I'm not an expert of Lord of the Rings, but there's that, that's sort of the phenomenon. It's like, you're just, you're withering away. You're, you're giving up your soul to some degree. You're living to work rather than working to be able to live the way you want to. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah, that's it, it. You know, you said you don't criticize people, but it, it's kind of, it's like, oh man, I wish I could just like wake you up to what you know, another possibility might be. Right. And, yeah. so, and, and it's, it's hard because everyone around you is doing the same thing, you know, and we are followers by nature. We're, we're, we're tribe, tribal, tribal uh, beings. So we tend to like kind of stick with the status quo and there's always sort of a, you know, a middle road where p- people kind of do the same thing. You do what you see others do. Yeah. You don't see a bunch of people like, you know, maybe, maybe more and more like one of the things with my truck camper, which I mentioned before we started recording is, you know, I'm trying to make sure that I, you know, don't get stranded and I, you know, I don't, don't break down. I know what I'm doing before I go out on this big trip. And I've had, I think this is maybe my seventh RV. So I've been, you know, I've been driving around with RVs of various kinds for years now, but I like learning about this stuff. So I'm looking at all these YouTube channels. And there's tons of people on YouTube who like, you know, five years living in my Toyota Tundra, you know, literally. And they've got these really, really cool systems. And some of these people are sort of, um, they're on the outskirts of society intentionally. Right. You know, but there's a lot of really intelligent and seemingly pretty happy in their own zone people who are out there just living very very alternative lifestyles it's a possibility mm-hmm. so, but you don't see that on a regular basis you don't see people like quitting their their nine to five jobs to go and just do something totally different um very often those people often become motivational speakers and those sorts of things right right, like, right. you hear those stories those are extraordinary individuals but it's not common and to break away is um, is a huge thing. There was a, a commercial, I think it may have been for a credit card or something like that, but it's one of my favorite commercials. And they zoom in on an archaeological dig, you know, in Egypt or something like that. Um, and they, it's, you know, everyone's scurrying around. It's hot as shit. And they zoom into the tent and there's the archaeologists are there and there's an older guy and a, a younger couple. And the, the younger guy wipes his brow he's like oh man i should have gone to law school (laughs) and 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 the older guy says i did and now he's doing what he wants to do right yeah nice yeah Uh and i really like that it's like you know um you can those choices are there Mm -hmm. not not for i mean i like i like i said i've got really lucky my you know i've got uh, silver spoons you know galore in my mouth as far as i'm concerned so i'm i feel really blessed but I think if more people kind of realize what's available to them, um, they would they would maybe live differently. But yeah. you know that's a, that's a tough thing to do. Yeah, I, I think I've got kind of like a fear, and I think it, it gets worse as a person gets older. But it's like to mm. to get when you do get older. Say you get you make it to seventy years old, and you look back at your life and like what you know I've been here for seventy years, and what have I actually done? That mm. it's kind of a fear for me to to make it you know, into my older years and be like, I don't know what I've actually done on this life for the last 70 years to make it a reason that I was actually here. 
And I, yeah, mm-hmm. I think that in, that increasingly grows as I get older. Mm-hmm. But when you're younger, you don't, you probably don't think about that stuff because you think you can live forever. You think that you're going to be here for it, it. That's down the road. That's way down the road. Right. Yeah. There's a there's a book, um, and ironically, you're gonna. It's kind of funny that I bring this up in this context, but uh, Yuval Noah Harari, I think, is his name, if I'm remembering, in the book Sapiens: yeah. A Brief History of of, of Humankind. Mm-hmm. And I may have mentioned this on the previous podcast. It's one of my favorite books. It's very pretty long. It's like 30 hours as an audiobook, and basically goes through like all of human history, and fascinating stuff that I didn't get taught in high school or college that, you know, really, really like it talks about the history of money and for instance, and how really it's basically just, it's this social construct that we all kind of trust and believe in, you know, you got to kind of like really, it's amazing the extent to which we actually are, are trusting in one another to, to like hold up the, the concept of money, you know, as a means of exchanging value. Yeah. But anyway, when you, when you listen to that whole book, and, you know, he goes through, you know, the various epochs, like everything from, you know, us becoming literally genetically homo sapiens sapiens to, you know, all of the great figures of, of world history. And you think of actually the probably millions of people who were the who were the top leaders and best known in their tribe in prehistory. It really gave me this sense of, wow, like I'm really pretty insignificant. <laughs> like I'm not like shit. You know, like, like think about like, who is the most, who's the most um, important historical figure from the fifth century AD? I don't know. I'm not a historian, (laughs) but you could probably get some historians to tell you that. And most people wouldn't know who that is. That was the most important person of anyone who's known in historical record for that 100 year period. And most people have no idea who he is. (laughs) So we have this. It's built into. And when you when I kind of like listen to that, I'm like, holy crap, like it in a certain sense. It's like it doesn't matter. And you could think of that pessimistically. It's like, you know, I'm not important. But if, like in the other other senses that you know I got one shot at this, I might as well just go for broke and just live it up, you know, and just come come roaring into the, my last days that you know with a screeching halt and say, "Damn, that was one hell of a ride," right? You know, as opposed to you know, well, I need to kind of do these things and do this and that and the other. Not that it's not good to have morals by which you live and and, and live a principled life, of course. Um, but you only got one shot. And like when if that thought, like, um, you know, love leaving a legacy, a lot of people are really big on that. And, and I always sort of, after listening to that book, especially, I kind of like, okay, so, I mean, like, like even think about this, think about, you know, Bill Gates, you know, important guy, a hundred years from now, how many people will know who Bill Gates was? Right. I mean, really, I mean, uh, he, he is an important historical figure, but it's, he's not going to be that well-known. Even like you name, name the most well-known people in the world right now, a hundred years, no one's going to know who they are. Yeah. A thousand years, no one's going to know. All you got is now. You got this, this one blip, which is just minuscule in the whole timeline of the universe as best we know it. You might as well just like let it all rip, mm. you know, and you I mean, don't do anything just really ridiculous bring it to a screeching halt prematurely <laughs> but but it's just like just go for it you know and if if you make a mistake well then then you have all the benefits of having learned from a horrible mistake you know and and it's not going to matter like literally it's not going to matter in 
50 years. Mm-hmm. I, I doubt. I, and I, I always apply my rule of fives. I'll, 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 I, I don't know where I picked this up. Maybe you guys know because I, I've looked for the origin of this, but I have my own sort of version on it. So if something, if like something's kind of bothering me or I'm like torn by a decision, I apply my rule of fives. It's not mine. I borrowed it from somewhere, but I don't know where I first heard it. So I was like, okay, will this matter in five seconds? It's like, no, the person cut me off. They made their turn. They're out of the road. It's not going to matter in five. I'm good. Mm -hmm. I don't have to worry about it. Well, will it matter in five years? Well, obviously not. I won't even have remembered this. That doesn't matter. But if something else happens, will it matter in five years? Yes. Okay. I should probably stop and pay attention to that. Mm -hmm. Like that's something that's worth valuable. Like this is like, I'm having an argument, let's say with, with my girlfriend or the person I'm dating at the time. And this is one of those arguments that could make or break our relationship. Do I really want it to work? Will it matter in five years whether I do my best to hold this relationship together? Because this argument could be the permanent split. I'm going to really be focused and make that valuable. Or are we arguing about something like as silly as, you know, where we go to eat that night? Is it going to matter in five hours? No, probably not because I'll be asleep. It won't, won't matter. So you can take that five, five years, five minutes, five hours, five months, five decades when you're gone and apply, just throw five at it, whatever multiple of time that you want to use and say, will it matter or will it won't matter? And either way you look at it, it's a really nice way to sort of parse out the importance of any event in your life that is just like, it's almost been, it's given me like tremendous insights many times on what's important and what's not. And a lot of it's not, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of it's not that important. Yeah. So I find that's also an effective tool in working with anger management with, with it's, oh, yeah. I, I work with clients and they're, they're angry about something. And if we can get to them before they lash out in some physical way or something that's going to have you know, any kind of consequence to it, you know, I often ask that question now, is this really going to matter a year from now? Right. Because, right. because right. you're looking to move on into a different setting in your life. You're looking to go out and be more independent and reintegrate back into society is what you're doing right now or, or is, has what happened or what's going on right now going to be that important a year from now? Or will you, you know, maintaining focus and maintaining, you know, your, your equilibrium in your behavior, is that going to be more important? Which one are you really going to value a year from now? And that's an effective mm-hmm. tool as long as you can get to people. And you mentioned it. Yeah. You mentioned kind of a free will that always we we always seem to gravitate to at some point in our conversations every time <laughs> that we get together, which I love, by the way. Um, yeah. But, but I, I think that a lot of people are more predisposed to not being able to think in such a way for for whatever reason. I mean, there would there would have to be studies done and and a lot of research to to really pinpoint why people are they respond the way that they do. But some people just don't seem to have that natural, um, that that inclination to stop and think about the consequences of their actions. And so I wonder, mm. like with a lot of other motivations, how often is that uh, something that's teachable, or how often is it just a matter of the the cards that that are, that are dealt? Um, so one of the things that I do in in my work with people is I try to find out. Just you know, I'm, I'm not doing a study. I'm not you know, I, I take notes, but not like rigorous notes. Like I'm going to write a book over you know this this topic necessarily. But I just I want to know if it's possible to if some of these things that seem predisposed are they teachable to others? 
Can we create mm. new neural pathways, even though it's not something I'm measuring, but just, just from the knowledge of how we can learn, take on a task now, and it creates new pathways in our brain for us to, you know, to be able to do that task repeatedly and get better at it. Um, can we do that to someone who seems to not have that same predisposition to, um, to be able to stop and think? Because it just seems like they go off at the, at the drop of a hat. They're, they're, I mean, you're talking about mindfulness, essentially, as I'm, if I'm reading you right. And um, there is, you know, I'm not an expert on this in any, by any means, but I know there's, they're, they're building up a body of literature now looking at the brain and comparing, for instance, expert meditators mm-hmm. um, and versus those who are just starting to meditate for the first time. And there's this, a number of uh, areas in the brain that they call the default mode network. Yes. You probably know more about this than I do. Yeah. And those are those are the self-referential. Um, basically, that's that would be sort of the the anatomical locus of the ego. I guess is one way. I just came up with that term. It sounds like it. I think it fits and it makes sense to me. Yeah. Given what I know, and so good meditators can kind of like step back from that that self-centric perspective, mm-hmm. um, and they turn the d- default mode network turns off. So a mindfulness practice can literally build that ability neurologically to be able to step outside of your circumstances and literally see, okay, whoa, I'm pretty fucking pissed now. (laughs) My heart's going. I got a clenched fist. I'm ready to go to town. This isn't going to help me out. Like like James said, like a year from now, this is not going to behoove me to punch this wall because I know that's going to mean a report and it's going to go on my record and my probation officer is not going to be happy with me and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think I'll just unclench my fist and say, how about we talk about this when we're both calmed down? I'll come back about an hour. Does that sound good? Right. Something like that, you know? So meditation does seem to help with that. And, and a mindfulness practice, I think, is is one thing that at least the research, like like you said, you haven't been doing studies, but I think there are studies that point in that direction that it is a teachable, learnable um, skill, mm-hmm. literally. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And although we don't have, like in, in my work, oftentimes it's reactive. We have to react to someone who is uh, off their baseline, per se, whether it's angry or whether it's psychotic or something of that nature. Um, I, I'm always trying to find ways to, to get someone's attention, right? Just to, just to be able to get their attention long enough to get to that point. Because meditation is a great practice, and there, there are a lot of studies coming up, um, coming out now about the benefits of meditation even the you know they're doing brain mapping to show which areas of the brain are lighting up during meditation right or or being turned off or being turned off right Right. and so but in in the heat of the moment you don't always have time to to meditate you know you don't not everybody's is uh receptive to that they don't they think it's either hooey or they think that it's uh not applicable to them or what have you so um mindfulness practice on the spot is something i find very interesting as well being able to just kind of redirect uh, mm-hmm. one's pattern at that point in time and trying to, you know, steer away, trying to, that avoidance motivation, I guess, is where this really comes into play. Um, trying to avoid the, the threat of whatever the consequence is about, of whatever's going to happen from what I'm, what I'm engaged in right now. Do I really want to face the consequences of this a year from now? Because the consequences yeah. may very well resonate. So, you know, a long, a long while ago, um, it's been maybe 10, 15 years, but um, I was speaking with an ex-girlfriend of mine, and I hadn't really been in contact with her very often, but I had since gone through another relationship, which was very tumultuous, and which was the most growth-promoting relationship that I've had, actually. It was 
we went through therapy together. It's the time when I was I did therapy for I don't know, seven or eight years, something like that. And we did couples therapy. We did Imago therapy together. We did Imago workshop. I don't know if you know about Imago, but mm. I would highly recommend that. Um, yeah, Imago is um, it's the, based on the Italian word image. And basically they use um, uh, some listening. I think it's from Gestalt psychology. You mm. would know better than me where you, you listen to another. This is like this is one of the most meaningful ways of, uh, of this um, of interacting with people. So you would spend a minute listening to your partner tell you about something which they've been meaning to convey to you or which has been bothering them without rea- being reactive, just listening. So biting your tongue and listening as best you can. And at the end of that minute, you'd have about 30 seconds to reiterate to them what they just said, which the first time you do is almost impossible because <laughs> yeah. your mind is constantly chattering with reactive thoughts of like, I didn't say that. I didn't do that. What? That's fucking bullshit. Like, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and by the time they're done with the minute, you're like, all I know is that you accuse me of a bunch of things, but I don't even know what they are. I don't know what, what you were actually saying. So you try it again. And this time you're like, okay, this is how she feels when I do this. And regardless of what my intention is, these are her thoughts. Um, this is how this affects her. And now I know how that. So then when you reiterate, you know, the, you, you've told me that when I leave the toilet seat um, down or up, then it feels like you don't recognize that I live in this house with you. I know that's been a big issue because I just moved in and you feel left out. And I want you to know that I, I'm not leaving you out or what have you. So. Very, very impressive. I'd gone through that and a bunch of other things, and I, I was having this conversation with uh, an ex-girlfriend of mine. I don't remember what the topic was, but but something came up, and that you know, five, eight years ago, previous to that, I would have been reactive. I would have been pissed off. Mm. Maybe I told her about something that happened, and I said, "Yeah," and then th- they did this and that, and I'm like, you know, it's no big deal. So you know, took care of it. And she's like, she's like, she's like, you've been like, you've been brainwashed. Like what? what has this woman done to you? She's like, she literally, she didn't know how to handle the, the ability that I had gained in order to be mindful and put things into a broader perspective and not be reactive and not be immature in the way that I had been in the face of those, of those circumstances in that situation. And that I think is the thing that faces people who want to become more mindful. Maybe some of the people that you're interacting with there you know, who come from a, a family where everyone's reactive mm-hmm. and anger is the, the, is the best way to, is the only way to be heard is to be really loud yes. and to like go to town. And all of a sudden, like, how are you going to fit in with your family? You know, if you come in with flowing robes, you know, in the lotus position, you float in there like, what the hell? Like, this, who are you? Yeah. You would be rejected. <laughs> like, you just can't shift into this totally different way of thinking, which is what, mindfulness does it's like literally you're shifting from your normal first person to kind of a third person perspective mm-hmm. that's a, that's a quantum leap in consciousness almost in a way and that's just too much for many people i think to be able to do until they get to rock bottom that's what i always sort of found in in therapy is sort of rule of thumb is like you, you keep doing the same shit until the circumstances are like are so aversive that you have to do something to change. Yes. And it's, and it, it becoming mindful and learning how to control your temper is better than have going to jail and paying fines and the remorse that you might have for what you did and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So like that's, yeah, that's, that's the kind of, unfortunately that's what it takes a lot of time. So people could persist in behaviors 
because they get some reinforcement, you know, by even by doing those things, like their, their anger was heard and they did get someone's attention and yes. it was, they had some negatives, but they can't see the positives because it hasn't gotten to be where it's so damn negative. They can't stand to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. But they're also so. seeking that feeling from the retaliation they're expecting you to give them. And if they're not getting that, that throws them off too. So it makes them more angry. Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, Eckhart Tolle talks about the pain body. You heard him Mm-mm. refer to that. So he's, this is a really, it, it's, um, it's kind of a conceptual framework with which to view people who like invite turmoil and uh, conflict and arguments and pain into their into their lives and he sort of thinks that there's sort of like it's sort of like an entity that is that is uh and sort of invaded your body and your mind and your mentality where the person feeds on pain so it's kind of like the person who just is never happy unless they're unhappy and they they want to make sure everyone around them is unhappy as well so you might like my my. I always talk about my uncle just because I relatives I can talk about him, and I'm, he's he's gone now, so he, he doesn't care. <laughs> um, and he got pretty crotchety in his older age, and it was he was had this amazing. He's a very smart guy, an amazing knack for taking anything that was sort of good, that was positive or lighthearted, and flipping around. So, like we went we went out once to have some steak at the steakhouse that is usually, you know, one of his favorites. And, and we're like, Don, like, how's the steak? He's like, it's, is the steak's pretty good, but it's not as good as the one they have over there. It's some other place. It's like, okay, you got a great steak. Like, can't you just enjoy the great steak? You got to talk about how oh, some place is better. Like, there's always a negative tone to things. So you, I think, yeah, you get conditioned for feeding in that, feeding in pain and turmoil and, and being in that pattern, and I mean, Lord knows we're big on patterns. So I, have, I mean, you probably have run into people like this who have been in this circumstances who maybe have been in prison, mm-hmm. and that's what they've learned, and that's what they know, and when they come out, they don't really feel at home, even though you think that they would love to have their freedom, so they, they want to go back into prison, right? because that's their comfort zone. Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah, so that's why, you know, you'll have, you know, women and, and men do the same thing. They'll continue to go back into conflict ridden relationships because right. that's their comfort zone. Like that's what they, that's what they grew up with. Yeah. But they're conditioned for it in their family of origin. So they keep repeating that because their brain gets wired that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's an evolutionary thing, you know, is that somehow like evolution is like, okay, so your family has managed to survive this long with this sort of dynamic so we're going to make it so that you get imprinted with that being the right dynamic to follow until the dark, until the survival forces basically push you out and you end up dying because whatever you're doing familially isn't no longer at survival value. And so then that, that, that behavior would extinguish. But otherwise, we'll just keep reinforcing in your childhood what you learned from your parents because so far your parents have made it. And they're along a long lineage of, of humans that have made it to this point. But that doesn't serve us anymore. We don't have environmental pressures, you know, pushing us to extinction. Right. right. We have evolutionary, you know, those evolutionary um, tendencies. But there's so much we have to overcome. And that's one of the biggest ones is I think being mindful of like, okay, I'm doing this because this is what I was used to. Minimizing myself, you know, for other people because that's what I had to do in my family to kind of survive Mm -hmm. or not to get hit or whatever it may be. And, um, 
being mindful of that and stepping outside of that is is part of being a uh, I think a successful modern human, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Being fully erect in terms of your mentality. Right. right. That's a hard thing to yeah. do, though, right? To shift your mentality off of like years of growing up and seeing, you know, if you live in a terrible household and you know that's what you know growing up, it, you know, how do you how do you shift out of that later in life? You have to choose to do that at some point, and if, mm-hmm. if not, then you're just going to relive what you grew up seeing. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It was it, with a family growing up that way. It's very difficult. Now put it on the evolutionary. Put it in that perspective how difficult it is for us to unwind some of those behaviors and perspectives that we have. Right. You know, tribalism can be traced back to our evolution um, as a, as a, as you know, societies and you know, cultures grew out of that. And we wanted to protect that thing because other societies, other, other tribes would come and they would want to murder that tribe for the resources or just because they were different than those people. And mm-hmm. that had value at one point in time. But nowadays we know tribalism is not a good thing. It causes a lot of hate and, and other you know, negative uh, circumstances on, on the earth. And we want to try to unwind some of those things. But it's more difficult than just saying, you know what, that's not a good idea. We, right. it, it takes a lot of unwinding of our actual evolutionary makeup, the things that we've been conditioned to do, not just in my lifetime, but in my ancestors' lifetimes. And so our work mm-hmm. is definitely cut out for us. But I believe once again, that's why conversation is so important. You know, yeah. to, to have that perspective, to understand the, the the origin of things, I believe, is one of the first steps, if not the universal first step in trying to fix a lot of these issues. Yeah. It's, we have to sort of recognize that we are all one big tribe. Yeah. You know? Right. Um, have, you, have you guys had anyone on the podcast talking about uh, ayahuasca and and various hallucinogens and things of that nature. I figured you might have. We haven't. I've I've listened to a lot of stuff about it, yeah. uh, but we haven't had anybody on the show. I'd love to. Yeah. Yeah. I want to find someone, obviously, who is, you know, that not necessarily make a science of it, but not just someone who is haphazard about their, their usage, you know. Oh, right, right. I want to find someone who has a lot of knowledge and a lot of insight. And so we've been careful about who we select for such a thing, but we would, de- mm. that's definitely in our interest. You know, it's definitely in the realm of being cerebral for sure. Yeah. yeah. That, that's on my, that's at the top of my uh, to-do list of my bucket list for sure. Ayahuasca? Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, probably. Yeah. I mean, I've got some connections in Brazil. Um, I've actually looked into doing some retreats down there and I just, the circumstances haven't set themselves up for it, but it's one of those things that, the funny thing about it is that, um, uh, and, and I've heard other people say this, is is people, you look at it like, well, what happens if I do that and I become someone other than who I am now? Yeah. And in that case, you wouldn't care because then you're that, you're that person. Right. Like, you, what if you lose your ambition to do the things you're currently wanting to do? It's like, well, then it's no longer your ambition. Why would it matter? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. It doesn't make a difference. Yeah. So I'm not I'm not too concerned about that. Um. Uh. But it's one of the things that crossed my mind. And speaking of bodybuilders, a great public example of someone who who has done that and been public about it is Dorian Yates. Right. And if you look at you know his what he's talked about and how his perspective on the world has changed, um, it fits in with the, exactly what we're talking about with with tribalism. There's something about those psychedelic substances. Entheogens or whatever term you know you want to use. I think the terminology is sort of up in the air now, depending on which which you've talked to a scientist or someone who's sort of in the in the mix. Mm-hmm. But there's there's something to say for human interaction with those with those substances with that with the, those rituals 
that um, I mean, there's not a, there's not a, a really a culture anywhere in history, at least according to Andrew Weil um, uh, in the book he wrote many many years ago called The Natural Mind, which is a nice book. He doesn't talk about this stuff, but he actually was interacting with Timothy Leary back in the day of LSD. Right. And basically, it, all cultures have, and, and almost there's instances of, of people, we just naturally seek out altered states of consciousness mm-hmm. in various ways. And, and resistance training is one of those. Getting the gym and like, you know, loading up a bunch of weight on your back to where you're like literally scared that you might cripple yourself. Like that's a little fucked up, you know, it's like jumping out of an airplane, you know, and all the other, and doing the craziest things we do. And well, the other thing that you find is that there's rituals of, um, of transferring from boyhood to manhood. There's various tribal rituals. There's all sorts of, of, uh, of, of, uh, interaction with things like ayahuasca that you find in many of these older cultures that we don't have really nowadays. And one of the things that they seem to serve was creating that sense of oneness, that connection um, that we really need now mm-hmm. on a global level. Right. Because otherwise the tribalism that brought us to this point, you know, is not going to, it doesn't serve us really in the way that, um, uh, in a way that's going to keep us alive for much longer as humans on the right. face of the planet. Yeah. 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 The interesting you know, they call DMT the spirit molecule, at least some people do. And there's right. even a, a documentary labeled as such. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's funny because, it, th- yeah, those those kinds of things are actually, those substances are actually seeming like it, it's coming back full circle around to a more primitive state of mind that has utility nowadays for us. It, it's it's expanding consciousness. Mm-hmm. It's expanding our outlook because somehow, some way, and te- I believe technology has a big thing to do with this, with all the information that we have at our fingertips and all of the resources and being able to talk from across, you know, in one state to another in our country, just like it's just like you're sitting at the other end of the table right now. Um, it's kind of bottlenecked us in, in our perceptions and it's limited us in, in the way that we can utilize our, our minds and the way that our brains work neurologically, it's, it's bottlenecked us into a very tight uh, set of, of perspectives or, or perceptions that we can use. And these molecules um, are re-expanding those, if you will. They're giving us that, expand, that expansion of consciousness to help us to see what maybe it used to be like a little back in the day, right? Back, mm. back when, when the tribal people or whomever were coming across these, these particular plants, um, what they experienced and how they experienced it and, and how maybe even the evolution of spirituality, especially non, uh, I guess, Western religious spirituality even would have developed through these molecules. Yeah. And so it's kind of like a, to me, it's kind of like a full circle type of experience that that people are really coming to now it's becoming more mainstream it's never really not been there it's it's always been there it just seems like right nowadays it's coming more to the forefront that that uh, very established people with uh, a scientific outlook and very logical and, and rational people are, are coming across these things and they're really starting to use them as a tool again to for the good I, I think mm-hmm. I, you know for the benefit of not just themselves, but you know, mm-hmm. um, the, you hear about some bad trips, some people who saw some things that, that really haunt them, and, and, and I, they'd rather not ever yeah. do it again. Yeah, I mean, Michael Pollock, I think, is the author of the book "How to Change Your Mind." Um, he's been on the Sam Harris podcast, and Sam has had many people on there that explain sort of the, the history of the research mm-hmm. that kind of went down the tubes when when Timothy Leary went off the rails, and you know, the government said, "No, no, we're going to quash this." Yeah. Um, but 
but yeah, there, there's, there's, there's something that's available to us. There's another state of consciousness available to us that can be mediated. It can be mediated through, through meditation, but a quicker route or through these, these entheogens, so to speak, um, that it does kind of make sense. We're going to have to make use of those and some other ways to kind of come together as, as human beings. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting. The thing you said about, about social media and the internet, um, kind of pulling us away from things is, and it connects with this mindfulness idea. And that's a thought that I had and thinking about what we might talk about is, um, I think one of the things that we have to learn how to do is recognize the extent to which social media, um, and we're starting to do a much better job of this. It's well known if you look, but you have to know to look, it's kind of hard to know what you don't know. So mm, right. right. Mm-hmm. And that's that something about the nature of, of of our phone and all the things that we're blasted with in terms of social media and even just all the marketing things, the things that are going around that's so far away from what we've been designed for from an evolutionary standpoint. You have to recognize that we're used to it. I mean, we're very, very highly adaptable, but we have to recognize that, you know, there's something bizarre about like, did my phone just buzz? Did my phone just buzz? Did my watch just buzz? Like constantly, like that's a that's that is that that is something that that we are because we're apes that have just kind of emerged from the forest very, relatively recently, right? Evolutionarily, we're 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 set up. We're tuned to be aware of like those kind of immediate sorts of stresses. Is that a snake? No, it's a stick. Is that a buzz? Oh, wait, wait, wait. Someone might have said, I might have gotten like a, a, bu- a bunch more likes on my last post or what have you. Mm. And we get so, we get addicted to those things. And people have talked about this who know much more about the science than I do. But I think the most important thing for the individual is to recognize that like I'm, I'm, I, I've got a, I've got literally social media is like a virus that's hacked my operate, the operating system of my mind. Yeah. And I have to recognize, you know, like, so when I have that little, little, uh, something comes across, you know, like you, you haven't updated your malware or what have you. It's like, I don't have any malware on my computer. I'm not clicking on that. That's a virus. Like I'm not clicking on that. I'm not, go- I'm not opening that email. I'm not opening that link from Apple that tells me I need to like reconfirm my password. Yeah. We have to be aware of what is, what's going on and the extent to which our, our, our lives are being in, in the cases of many many people, younger folks, especially who grew up with in a sort of a symbiotic relationship with their phone, is that this is your symbiote. Like this is this is kind of part of you, and you have a choice as to how to what extent it is a parasite, or what, to what extent is a, has a positive symbiosis with your life. Mm-hmm. You know, and like just the example of like I said, people ask me questions on Instagram, and I like to respond with a with a voice message because it's faster. You know, and it's like, and people kind of, you know, I, I really hate the like, you know, the like, the, oh, Doctor Scott, and like, I'm a, I'm a, a fanboy and all that kind of stuff, but it's kind of cool. It's like, he just, like, I actually got to hear his voice. I, you know, he actually just talked to me, like, yeah, because I'm a person, and so are you, and I want to help you. Yeah, that's as simple as it is. Right. That's so much. There's so much more to that. So that's like one of the things I do, but to kind of step outside of like. Why would I send a text message when I can get more information across in less time by talking? Mm. It's just sort of silly. 
or tech, even text to talk. When you can send voice messages, text to talk, it's like, okay, now, no, I didn't mean to write Petunia there. <laughs> I meant something else. You know, like, where's, I've never typed Petunia on my phone that I know of. Right. Why does it want to put Petunia down? So, those sort of being, just being aware and being mindful of, of the things that are, that are sort of, um, uh, very much new to the human condition, I think is really important, you know, and, uh, if the more we can do that, the more we can recognize that we just, they were really pretty simple beings who want affirmation and love and connectedness and to feel safe, you know? Yeah. And, you know, and everyone's like, that's the crazy thing that, that I think is one of the things that, um, that is, Probably it's interesting, and I don't. We could talk about this because I'm not really sure as to why this would be the case. But I think it's part, maybe even part of the natural human condition, is to look at other people and to somehow think of it's maybe it's it's a tribal thing, I guess. Now that I'm more think of it, is to think, you know, that that person is just like they're they're different than me. Mm-hmm. Like like they don't like they they just they don't have the same. It's like that person just wants to love their family. They want to be loved, regardless of how much of an asshole they may be acting out as or whatever their behavior is, they're another human being and they have the same needs and desires pretty much that I do. There, there are people who are literally are psychopaths and maybe have some, you know, cerebral derangement, which, which means that just they don't feel things the same way as others. But right. for the most part, most of us are just like, we're just people who have very simple needs and desires in, in various ways. And if you can just see that in somebody mm-hmm. and go, okay, dude, this is just ridiculous. We're just both trying to get to the bottom of this of this information here. There's no reason to be, you know, calling saying I'd beat your ass if I saw you in person on online, you know, or whatever crazy trolling, you know, online arguments are going on. And like people like the discussions you see on Facebook and sometimes Instagram, I see them more on Facebook, I think, where people are just going off and doing things they never would do in person, saying things they'd never say in person. Yeah. Because those things would they would not be met with a verbal response in many cases. It would have been something else. Yeah. Um, we have to step out. It's like, okay, gosh, this computer is getting me to act like an asshole. Mm-hmm. This is just ridiculous. I, I, why am I giving this computer this and, and this medium, this control over how my personality manifests? I'm a much better person than this, and I can show that. And we can all sort of come to recognize, like, okay, it's just the computer, and it's, you know, and, and that person, they live in North Dakota, and I'm, I can, if I want, I can just ignore them. I can even block them, for gosh sake, you know? Yeah. You can't do that. You can just walk away. Right. So, but we don't recognize that. There's something about us that's, and this is a tribal thing. It's like you normally, you, you want to resolve those conflicts because in a, I think in a tribe, there's survival value for rectifying conflicts as immediately as possible because you need to be, uni- you need to be sort of unified in whatever you're doing as a tribe because you have to, everyone has to work together and share. Yeah. And we don't, and there's a whole other, actually this is covered in the Sapiens book as to how um, the hunter-gatherer lifestyle got sort of totally fucked up by agriculture and the fact that I have my things and you have your things and that is very, very new to human civilization. Mm-hmm. But but if we just recognize, you know, that we can just, we're all in this together, man. And like, I, there's no reason to be an asshole. Like, we're just trying to figure this out. And I'm behaving this way because of the the uh, electronics, the social media. Um, that can open up a whole other perspective, and goddamn, reduce our frustration on a daily basis, <laughs> right? To a large extent. So yeah, 
once again, I think just having the conscious, uh, just having the awareness of of the the interface that we're using, like you said, the, the computer. Um, I, I think it's it's not the computer's fault. Obviously, that's just a tool, like any other tool. Yeah. But it's it's the access to negativity. It's so easy because the instant consequence isn't there. Like you said, if if someone said, "Hey, you know, you suck. I, I hate your opinion." Um, in person, there might be some more immediate physical consequence to that remark on the computer that it's just not there. You can say whatever you want and, and feel relatively safe that there's going to be no consequence whatsoever to what you said. And so that access to easy negativity, I think just it, it festers. And especially when it's, when you, uh, you, you consolidate that across, you know, the, the entire interwebs, everybody on the internet who has access to that, not everyone's negative, but there are a lot more people, the odds arrays of who's going to utilize that access to negativity. And that breeds more negativity, obviously, you know, negativity just, it just festers and it feeds on it on itself and it grows. And I think that's a big reason why the technology is so, uh, it's such a threat. It it, it can be, it's it's a tool, but it. it can be such a bad thing. You know, one of the things, too, kind of on the flip side is every once in a while, I don't get much of this because I don't respond and I'm not, I try not to be reactive. Um, so I, I don't sort of bring this energy into my online space. But like every once in a while, it's just like I'll have someone just like say just like some really horrible comment about me. Just like they just came on because they wanted to insult me, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I and I've learned this, you know, in various ways over the years is that, is that because there's this lack of limbic resonance, like literally you're, you're disconnected from that person because of the, the, the veil of the, the social media. I can't reach out to that person and say, dude, what's going on, man? Look, why are you so negative? Right. Like they, they just say, you know, fuck you retard. Like I don't, <laughs> none of your business. Like you, you, you can't, you, you can't get to them in the way that you could. Like if you said, you said, Hey brother, come here, man. Let me let me buy some lunch. Let's let's talk or right. or whatever. Do something nice for that person. They make eye contact. They hear your voice. All those things that are they're missing. And there's so so there's uh you get controlled to a certain degree. Your 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 behavior in many cases can be just very very odd. People that are really it's funny how many times have you met people in real life that you would you think would be totally different based on how you. You perceive them on the internet. It's very mm-hmm. common. Yeah. Right. yeah. So the internet is like controlling your behavior in a certain way, but it's also limiting our ability to really connect with people who we would like to, you know, and reach out to people. So people can end up like, like, like basically secluding themselves, like the people who go and like, what a sad thing it is. Like literally, I mean, we can laugh about it, but to be like a troll, to like be someone who just spends hours like going around and just like sending out negativity yeah that's a pain body right there that's an example of a a true pain body is that because you know you can get reactivity on the internet you could you could you could spend a lifetime just creating arguments and all you have to do is go in and start insulting people and people will get reactive to that yeah and and that's like wow like what that is that's a threat like that's a life destroyer because you know, as, as they say, um, you know, the neurons that wire together or fire together, wire together. Mm-hmm. So you start doing that all the time and like you spend more and more time because guess what? You start liking that. That becomes your pattern. You're, you spend less time outside. So like literally how like I'm trying to imagine someone who maybe sits up, gets up in the morning on 
Saturday like today, and they spend two hours trolling people online, you know? Yeah. They're just a total asshole. And then they go out to do gro- be a, do grocery shopping and do their whatever they're going to do out in the real world, so to speak. Like, how do they – can you flip the switch? Can they be, like, a nice person? And, you know, or, or like, how could you – like, that's a definitely totally different MO. Mm-hmm when you're out in the real world. So you start ingraining that behavior. And at least I think probably most people know that it's socially unacceptable to just insult every person that you come in contact with. Right. Like that, that's, that behavior is not going to, not going to last too long. Eventually you're going to run up against the wrong person. And then, you know, you'll, you'll be, they'll be dead in your tracks, maybe literally. Right. Um, but, but, but you lose those social skills and you, and you can lose that ability to um, derive pleasure from real human interaction and and i've had to be really careful with this i've one of the things that i've i've noticed especially when i get like on a on a like a writing jag where i'm like you know working on like one of my books or what have you and i'll, mm-hmm. I'll go and like maybe i might just go to go to the gym early because i have some things i want to do and the, one of the gyms i go to is almost no one there many times so i won't talk to anyone i can go i've gone like three or four days even though i'm right here in tampa without talking to anyone almost, maybe just like one person at the grocery store. But what will happen after several days is that I'll, I'll have like, I'll go out and I'll be just like this total chatterbox and I'll be just like talking like crazy as you guys can probably imagine. <laughs> and people are like, what's wrong with this guy? Like what, what, you know, how much amphetamines did he just take, <laughs> you know? Right. And so I, I, cause I'm just jonesing for that interaction. So that's the thing is that, you know, it robs us of, of the ability to enjoy the things that we're, we're, we're supposed to have with hu- real human interaction if we, if we start driving it from the online interaction yeah. more so. It's like the nice thing about being online is like you can go and talk to people you never talked to or have mm-hmm. these types of conversations. Yes. You can like, like Brad, I mentioned Brad Schoenfeld, like great guy. He was on a podcast that I used to do. He chimed in on a thread just that was on Facebook. It's like, that's very cool. Like Brad Schoenfeld's in the Bronx, New York, and he's typing on Facebook answering questions and talking to people. Mm. That's cool as shit, you know? So that's good. But so you have to take the good and just like, okay, now I've been, on the, been online for four hours. I think I need to leave the house, yeah. you know? <laughs> so that's, the, that's a part of that mindfulness that um, I think like people – I mean, I think James, you're probably a little older than Colt. I'm just guessing, but mm-hmm. um, you know, because I didn't grow up, the internet wasn't like born into me uh, as a cyborg when I, you know, was turned twelve or what have you. Yeah. So I have perspective on this, but it's kind of up to us to sort of be the old farts in a way and just say, hey, you know, be mindful of what's going on here. Because yeah. some, I can't imagine if I'd been born thirty years later that I wouldn't be completely hooked up and be have a very different, be completely blind to the things I'm talking about now. That's a great point, doc. I, I just turned 42 earlier okay. this month and Happy I, birthday. I, thank you, sir. And yeah. I, I have, uh, often had the conversation, I'm sure with Colt and with, <laughs> with some others about how we're, uh, my, our generation really, um, including you and, and down to Colt, Colt's about 10 years younger than me. Um, how we are in this, this very special, time period where we remember pre-internet but we're also pretty much fully integrated you know 
I'd say somewhat fully integrated. My kids are fully integrated in the internet for sure. Right. Mm-hmm. They don't know what it's like not to have a device, you know, at, at their fingertips when, when, if they need it. Right. I remember when that wasn't even a thing. Right. So, so our generation, our, mm-hmm. our, our age group, I guess you could say is in a very special time where we can, we have both perspectives. And so it's mm-hmm. kind of up to us, what you're alluding to or what you, what you're stating is just that we need to, you know, Sound the siren. We need to sound the alarm. Hey, this is how it used to be. These are the dangers that we see. Be careful. And so, to to help mitigate some of the some of the threats that that you're speaking of, I think is is just to put as much good information out there on the internet as possible to counter yeah. to counter the all of the the crap, all of the negativity, all of the bad information, all of the just anything that might be detrimental and. and to me, I try to keep you know my kids and, and and just people that I know in perspectives. Like, what do I want them to see when they go out on the internet? What what should they have access to? And of course, I can't you know we don't put out that much information ourselves, but to to be able to try to promote those things, to be able to try to to sound those things that, that are positive, that are good, that are that are you know, righteous, I guess so to speak, and make sure that they um, anybody within my sphere of influence knows that this is okay. This other stuff you got to be careful with. Yeah, and uh, I think that's the best that we can hope for. Yeah, the bad thing is I, you're I, the old guy now. Yeah, right. So when yeah. you say anything yeah. to the kids about the bad things of the internet and all that kind of stuff, they're like, "Oh, you're not in the know. You're you're <laughs> you're that old guy <laughs> now." <laughs> Start calling me boomer or something. I'm not. I'm not technically a boomer, but yeah. See, so that's why I have the multicolored mohawk. Like, dude, I'm not old man. I'm as young and stupid as anybody. So you got to recognize that. It's all state of mind, man. Yeah. I, there's, I got, I think I literally, it came up just today, sometime in the last 24 hours on Facebook, a, a, a memory of a video that I put out on YouTube, I think it was three years ago, um, just sitting out here on my porch on this very thought and just kind of hit me like at the time, I think a lot of people were, were arguing about the idea of what is clean eating, what does that mean? You know, does it have to be like chicken and rice or can you like have like salmon and vegetables? Like, what does that actual term mean? Right. It's thrown around a lot. And I thought to myself, you know, really, you can apply this idea of clean. Th- it's Clean eating is sort of whatever is you being very mindful of picking and choosing what it is you put into your body. Mm-hmm. So it's not haphazard. You're just not like, you know, cruising past the countertop and there's brownies and you just grab one and eat it. You know, or you're not like, you know, feasting on whatever they happen to be grilling up at Costco as you're shopping or, right. you know, that's not very clean. Like that's not, you're not being mindful of it. You can have various different eating um, philosophies depending on, you know, what you're trying to do dietarily and as a bodybuilder or what have you. And the same thing applies to thinking. So I said, you know, this is kind of like this idea of clean thinking. And that's the thing, you know, the, the idea of free will aside and someone just posted a comment like a less than a week ago on the video actually talking about this idea of free wills, but we'll, we'll put that aside again for now, is that you have a choice to pick and choose what it is that you feed into your brain in terms of the thoughts that you digest mm-hmm. and that you expose yourself to. So, you know, you can, you can find a thread where, you know, you're like listening to people going off on, on one another and like, oh my God, I can't believe he said that and I can't believe he did that and you know, you know, people are posting the the meme of Michael Jackson eating popcorn. You know that one that's uh-huh. like I'm, I love to watch this shit. Yeah. Like, like, but or and what does that do? Like, literally, what are you feeding in, into your brain when when you when you when you partake of those things and do those things? Or or you could go and you know 
find an audiobook or listen to your po- your your all's podcast or choose something else and feed some other information into your into your mind um, which is maybe better for you which mm-hmm. is more healthy for your your mindset and your perspective on things so maybe you listen to an audiobook and you got a really cool thought you know or several of them that that maybe come up later in the day that you can share with somebody that happens to me a lot. I've got things that are in my head and I like, and I, and I tell somebody something in the grocery store or what have you. And yeah. it's like, well, that's kind of cool. You know, I'm glad I was thinking about that. If I had been spending that time, you know, looking at some thread of negativity, I would have had anything to say. I probably wouldn't even talk to that person. Right. right? Yeah. Because my mindset would have been better. So you repeat that again and again and again, you feed in those things and you, and you, and you're not mindful of what you're, what you're partaking of. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? You know, if you keep eating out of the vending machine, your body's going to look like it. And if you keep feeding in vending machine level thoughts from social media, depending on who you follow and what you click on, eventually that will manifest in how your mind operates, what your perspective is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, and they say, what is your, the average of the five people who spend the most time <laughs> around or something like that, you yeah, know? Right. And there is a choice that you can make in that. You can, you know, it's like, you know what, this, I have this person that just is sort of negative all the time. They not, and I have a really good friend who did this. She had a friend for, for decades. And finally the last straw became the last straw. And she said, you know, this, this friendship, this, I don't know if you call it a friendship, but our, our interaction just isn't something that is what I, that I want out of someone I spend so much time with in my life. And she struggled with it for the longest time, but it was a really, really good thing for her to do. Mm-hmm. And probably for her friend, because the things her friend was, was doing were things she knew she shouldn't be doing. She, she was smart enough and not a psychopath or sociopath to know that those are not cool things to be doing to other people. Mm-hmm. So she got a lesson like, okay, I can't behave this way if I want to keep people in my life. So it's probably good for both of them. But so she made the choice to, to, to rearrange the time that she spends with people and to, to, to create the world that she wants to have who's bold. And this is someone who's, this isn't like, you know, a 14 year old, like, you know, trying to figure out who to hang around with after school. This was someone who's in her fifties, mm. someone that she'd known for a long time. It was a bold, it was a magnificent step. She's also a therapist. So she knows how to, how to do the big, the, make the big steps. Sure. <laughs> sure. But the same thing applies the clean thinking thing. You know, you can, Sometimes I've had, con- I don't know if you guys have ever done this. I've had conversations where I just, I just bow out. I'll just like, sometimes I'm like, you know what? It's worth to making up a white lie to free myself from the negativity of this person. <laughs> Their pain body is just oozing. You know, I got to get the hell out of here. And I just go because that's, it doesn't do me any good to feed, feed what they're, allow them to think that what they're doing is something that people like. Like if you, if you hang around with someone who's being really negative and just going bonkers and you sort of like nod your head and like, oh yeah, you know, that must've really sucked. And like, you don't like either tell them like, dude, you got to give it up at some point in time. You don't hit them with some hard love, some tough love, or you don't just vacate the conversation. Then in a way you're at least, you know, indirectly saying, Hey, it's okay to just constantly, you know, babble on to people about negative shit all Mm -hmm. the time. Yeah. So we have control over that. It's just, you know, we, we just don't recognize the extent to which we do. So you can, you can feed all, there's all sorts of awesome stuff online that can be fed into your brain. Um, and we always have the choice to like, you know, change the tab or, you know, 
get off Facebook or whatever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, uh, I think we should start another podcast called Vending Machine Level Thoughts. <laughs> I think that would be awesome. There you go. I like it. I, I like the analogies for sure. I love the clean thinking idea. Matter of fact, I, I tend to take notes, you know, of some things I want to refer back to as we're as we're speaking. And uh, I've got a pretty good list of topics for next time, Doc. <laughs> I got, I got tell you. Cool. Uh, we're coming up on two hours now. Um, I want to be okay. mindful. Yeah. Want to be mindful of your time. I know you got some training to do today. Yeah. Um, as always, man, we really just appreciate your time it's it's just valuable to us man i love i love having you um on to, to discuss whatever comes to mind and it just i, I feel like we could go forever of, of course and uh, but I, I do want to be mindful and and save some of the thunder for for next time which i'm always right excited for but doc cool. make, make sure that you give us anywhere where people can find you anywhere where they can they can come for for the value of everything that you do out there um, you can Literally, if you just Google Scott Stevenson bodybuilding, the, everything comes up. I've got fortitudetraining.net. I've got beyourownbodybuildingcoach.com or byobbc.com. Or, and, I think, and I think byobbcoach.com. Fortitude training on Instagram. There's an underscore between the two words. Yeah. It's really easy to find me, you know. Yeah. Uh, just Just Google. Scott Stevenson Meathead or Scott Stevenson Bodybuilding, and they both will get you <laughs> to the right place. Once again, you have taught us and our listeners how to better use Google, right? Just Google it, yeah. right? <laughs> have, you, have you tried Googling Scott Stevenson? Yes, I have. There's, there's a, there, I think there's a, there's a osteopath in Houston, Texas named Dr. Scott Stevenson, okay. but obviously not me. But if you put the bodybuilding in there, you get it. And actually, my webpage is drscottstevenson.com, so you can go to that one as Perfect. well. Yeah. Doc, we really appreciate you once again, man. Thanks for coming on and uh, always looking forward to next time, man. Thanks again. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. All right. And we are out. Thanks again to Dr. Scott Stevenson and thank you to the CEP listener. Remember that word of mouth is like oxygen for our lungs, so don't forget to tell your friends and family about the great variety you hear right here on the CEP. Be sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you consume your podcast that you love so much. And you want to do that to keep the variety coming straight to your ear holes with the automaticity. We love it when you give us all your love on the socials when, in fact, you do give us all your love on the socials. So be sure to give us your love on the socials. And also be sure to visit the launching pad for all things cerebral at thecepodcast.com. And of course, if you need to contact us for anything at all, you can do that at cerebral at thecepodcast.com. Also remember that we now have official CEP merch at byjack.com slash CEP. That is B-Y-J-A-C-K dot com slash CEP. So get online and get your CEP gear today. That's all I got this time, folks. So until next time, be sure to keep those big, beautiful brains of yours warm out there. See ya.